0: So We're going to go through it in the class, so it's right up here, we'll have them this week, we'll have them next week, but you are welcome to grab some. <coughs> Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you be with us this morning as we study our prayer book and the prayers that we raise to You. May it be to Your glory, may we learn and inwardly digest. We pray this in Your blessed name. Amen. 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 So last week I talked about this great feeling that there needed to be a new prayer book in 1979. And then I basically told you 2,000 years of history to get us to that point. Of where we have a new prayer book and um, i'll talk a little bit more about the need for the new prayer book as we move forward but just to remind you for those of you that may not have remembered or those that weren't here last week there was this groundswell of feeling that we needed a new prayer book because everything had changed the world had changed there were modern times Uh, We had learned so much uh, since the previous prayer book was written, which was in the 1890s. So we're like 30 years later, and we're already wanting a new prayer book. Well, some of it was legitimate because there were things that had been missing. Uh, There was a a book, um, I guess it was a book or a scroll, called the Didache, which is one of the earliest Christian writings uh, that we know existed, but nobody could find a copy of it. It was the early liturgies of the church and the catechism around baptism. And then in the 1890s, they found it. Uh, the Metropolitan in Constantinople sent his, one of his couriers to the archives to get a particular document And as he was getting that document, he found the didache, which had been misfiled. Just think how many things are misfiled. If you've ever worked in an office, you'd understand that. Um, And there was also the apostolic traditions of Hippolytus, I believe that's how it's pronounced, which was another document that we knew. It was mentioned in lots of different things in ancient times. We're talking into the second century, as was the Didache, and nobody could find a copy of it. Well, it was found also. So suddenly, we had all of this new information that had been teleported, if you will, from the second and third centuries to the 20th century, and knowing all this new stuff, we just had to have a new prayer book to bring it up to date. Uh, that is my short version of last week's uh, talk. This week, I had um, told you I was going to talk about only two things. And they were the two prime things that drove the need for a new prayer book. There were lots of little cleanups that needed to be done, but there were two very pressing things. The first was baptism. And the second was the Eucharist or Holy Communion. And I'm going to start this morning by talking about baptism and I think I'm going to have plenty of time. In the years immediately following Jesus' ascension to the Heavenly Father, what were Christians doing in regard to baptism? What was their Modus operandi. How how were they how are they going about it? Uh, think of the time when Paul was uh, just beginning his missionary journeys. Say fifty or so years. What was going on with the baptism? We hear Paul talk about. You know, did you have the baptism of Apollos or this other or this other disciple? Or I can't remember baptizing anybody, but you might have my baptism. It still wasn't codified. It hadn't been a neat bow put around it uh, yet as to what baptism was. The early Christians were essentially following uh, the Jewish model of initiation. Uh, When John was standing at the riverbank down at the Jordan and people came out from town to, to see him and receive the baptism of John, it was to wash away their sins so they could be ready for the Messiah. That's what he was telling them. You brood of vipers. <laughs> who warned you of the wrath to come? No, I slip into John like that. Um, so it was, it was more of an initiation. And um, there were a few things that drove that process keeping in mind that Christianity is uh, being suppressed by the Roman Empire. It's a threat. So the early Christians, using that Jewish model of initiation as their baptism, they really had three things that were requisite to go along with that, and one was time. They were in no hurry to baptize anybody. Just like, you know, if you've ever known anybody to convert to the Jewish faith, it's not a quick process. I think Sammy Davis Jr. took years and years before he could uh, uh, be a full-fledged Jew. Um, So time was an important factor. You might be talking about three years, for example. The preparation process. And also, the early Christians were looking for examples of God-fearing life. How did you go about your daily activities? What was the context of how you related to your brother or your neighbor or to strangers? You were expected to have sober lives. That's a shudder for most Episcopalians. Sober lives, good works, and you were also expected to have a knowledge of the Old Testament. Why just the Old Testament? That's all there was. That's all there was, exactly, exactly. Now, as we move into the end of the 2nd century and into the 3rd century, um, there were... these giants of Christianity. And unfortunately, it, it, it's misogynistic as we look back on it because it pretty much only involves men and they're called fathers of the church. I'm sure there were mothers of the church too. They just didn't get recorded. Um, anyway, the, the fathers of the church began to quickly recognize that baptism... And being immersed in water was, there was something that evoked the primordial waters that are mentioned in the book of Genesis, where the Spirit was upon the waters. It also evokes for these early Christians, many of them who had been Jewish, uh, the Red Sea crossing. Um where God parted the waters so that the children of Israel could escape from the Egyptians. For them also, it evoked the concept of the water from Mary's womb as well as the healing pool at Bethesda. It evoked the concept of death and life. And we hear that a little bit in our new New 1979 prayer book. We hear it in the thanksgiving that is said over the waters. There, there goes like this. We thank you, Almighty God, for the gift of water. Over it, the Spirit moved at the beginning in creation. Through it, you led the children of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt into the land of promise. It is your, in it, your Son, Jesus Christ, received the baptism of John, and was anointed by the Holy Spirit as the Messiah, the Christ, to lead us through His death and resurrection from bondage of sin into everlasting life. We thank You, Father, for the water of baptism. In it we are buried with Christ in His death, and by it we share in His resurrection. Through it we are reborn by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in joyful obedience to Your Son we bring into this fellowship those who come with him, come to Him in faith baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit that very thanksgiving over the water was brought to be by the pressures that the prayer book authors um, felt and uh, there were primarily two Episcopal priests who took the the lead in um, theological lead in crafting this prayer book, and one was uh, a guy by the name, of, a priest by the name of Marion Hatchett, and I have his book, commentary on the prayer book. Uh, he was I don't know how many years he was the professor of liturgy at the University of the South Swinley, for, I, I don't know, 50 years, 60 years, however many years it was. And the other was a professor at um, Virginia Theological Seminary by the name of Charlie Price. And the two of them were very compatible with um, I don't know how they could afford it because long distance was actually long distance in those days. They must have had some kind of special line that they talked to each other. Um, but it, it it worked out to be a pretty good product. Now, in these early days of slipping back into history so I can put it in context, um, many of you will remember in, in the current prayer book there is a... Uh, Anointing with oil and the sign of the cross that is uh, used at the very end of the baptismal service. And that oil is called chrism and it is um, sanctified by the bishop um, and used for baptism. Well, in the early days, in fact, right on up through um, the 18th century um, there were two oils often used um, and one was the oil of thanksgiving which we call chrism and the other was the oil of exorcism okay and I'm not just talking in the Roman church we're in the eastern church I'm talking also in the Anglican church oil of thanksgiving and oil of exorcism and oil of exorcism, E X O R C I S M. I have here a book of common prayer, a book of common prayer, and in the public baptism in the book of common prayer, and this is 1549. But it was, it was present in later versions as well. And the priest says, looking upon the children, that's the rubric. The priest says, looking upon the children, I command thee, unclean spirit, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, that thou come out and depart from these infants, whom our Lord Jesus Christ hath thou saved, thou saved, to call to his holy baptism, to be made members of his body and of his holy congregation. Therefore, thou cursed spirit, remember thy sentence, remember thy judgment, remember the day to be at hand wherein thou shalt burn in fire everlasting, prepared for thee and thy angels. And presume not hereafter to exercise any tyranny toward these infants, whom Christ hath brought with his precious which Christ hath bought with his precious blood and by his holy baptism calleth to be of his flock. I had no idea. <laughs> well, you well, I had no idea until I was doing the research and writing my notes and I stumbled across this and I go, my goodness. The secrets we have. <laughs> So, um, baptism from the very beginning has been a public act. Now, when I say public act, in the early Christian church, keeping in mind they were persecuted, uh, within the church it was public. I don't mean public as in non-Christians, but it was important to know who was your fellow Christian. So you were baptized in public. In the early church, it was also done on Sundays and feast days. And um, as the church matured a little bit, uh, in both the east and in the west, uh, it when I say east, that's the orthodox west would be Roman. Uh, it was becoming increasingly important to baptize babies. And there were a number of reasons for that. Um, a lot of babies died early. People didn't want their babies not being saved and going to uh, heaven. And. Um, And the the death rate was high. That that was a large driver of that thought. So along with it came a concept um, that was being developed at the same time. We're talking second, third, fourth, particularly fourth and on centuries. The idea of original sin, that everybody even an infant from its mother's womb carried that original sin. That also influenced greatly the need to have these children baptized. As early as the 5th century, there is a recognition that children, as earlier Christians had made the choice to become Christians, that these children didn't. And there became a, con- uh, a concept that we later called confirmation, where a child, when he was able to recite the Lord's Prayer and, and other specifics, like the Apostles' Creed, they would be uh, given the opportunity to affirm for themselves the promises that were made at baptism. Uh, and, and we call it confirmation. Uh, but as early as the 5th century, that occurred, And it was occurring in local churches. It wasn't part of a a specific ritual that was authorized and ordained by a particular church. That's more of a grassroots um, um, liturgy that that was developed. Uh, And it it went from having the priest do it to having the bishop do it with a laying on of hands. um, Confirmation. Uh, or the reaffirming of baptismal vows uh, became a rite of passage, if you will, an admission to, the, to communion. And that was the case when I was confirmed. I didn't have communion until I was confirmed um, at St. James Episcopal Church in Perry, Florida by the right Reverend Hamilton West. Um, so we drift through time and we get to Uh, the early 1500s and the reformers are on the scene, principal among them would probably be Luther. And Luther looked at this concept of confirmation and this is a direct quote. It's mumbo jumbo. (laughs) So you have an idea of what Luther thought about confirmation. Basically, he excluded it. Along with him, uh, Calvin also denounced confirmation. Unnecessary, superfluous. uh, And as you look, it it pretty much has slipped in importance in our church since the new prayer book. Uh, Because as part of baptism under the 1979 prayer book, When a baby is baptized, they become full members of Christ's body. There is no subsequent uh, admission ticket to communion. If they are a baptized Christian, Father Joe stands up and says, all baptized Christians are invited. If you happen to be three years old and you're baptized, you're invited. You're a full member of Christ's church. Any questions so far? Anybody want to throw anything at me so far? No. <laughs> okay. um, so why don't we do confirmation? Yep. Pledge cards. <laughs> uh, he said pledge cards. You know, I, I haven't studied it a lot. I think a lot of it has to do with tradition. Uh, if they could have gotten away with it, I think the writers of the... Um, um, Seventy-nine prayer books would have slipped away from it. Um, Keeping in mind, how many of you were Episcopalians in the 70s? Do you remember all those trial liturgies that we had? Oh, they were, I mean, some of them were pretty good. Some of them were horrible. Um, You know, I, I... I don't know specifically, no, I'm just guessing, Joe. I I think we're bound to it more by tradition than anything else. It does give an opportunity for a young person to, on their own, stand up and affirm. But in terms of uh, uh, their theological presence to God and His grace, it doesn't make any difference. I agree 100%. Practically speaking, it is is our right of membership within the denomination, not just the... uh... Uh, I mean, we're yes, we're full members by in the body of Christ, but in the denomination, you've got to be affirmed or at least have confirmation somewhere that's acknowledged. So I wonder, if, is that? a... I mean, I, I don't know. Is that a new development in '79, or was that always the case? Um, no, I, I I think it uh, confirmation had a significantly higher posture under the '28 and prior prayer books, and and a sacramental presence. Yeah. I mean, I think we've reduced it, you know, in importance to, you know, question whether, you know, it's really sacramental. Or we call it a sacramental sign. Um, but I don't know the answer to that question. Hasn't it, hasn't it developed? It seems in my lifetime, because I became an Episcopalian in 52 or 53, but it seems to me it's developed into being more of a rite of passage. It. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, it, it is. Yeah. Yep. sort of like being bar into a denomination yes. or into a church. Or bat mitzvahed. Yeah, k Can- Can- it yeah. No. But you lose so much if you don't have it because you are and through confirmation, you're teaching young people all the things that we believe in the church and why we do things that and the whole know, there are a lot of people that haven't a clue as adults because they've never gone through that yep. class. And when they were doing it for two years, you had a bond there that we've lost. Let me go to the back and then I'll come to the front. Yes? Okay. If on the congregation and the bishop, the laying on of hands, doesn't that also refer to the apostolic succession of you know coming down from the um, apostles? That's certainly present, isn't it? Yeah. My great granddaughter was baptized someplace else and she was confirmed in this church and confirmation meant something to her. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's very, very yeah. important. Yeah. And and very honestly that's why we have it, is because so many people thought it was important. And she has little yep. confirmation I think it's something very important. Um I have mine right here and it says the Lord preserve thy going out and thy coming in Psalm 121 Hamilton West, Bishop of Florida I still cherish it Also, I agree with the kind of the rite of passage and affirming, you know, young people affirming that they believe that taking the faith of -hmm. having top confirmation I I feel like that's Probably the most important part of it, besides teaching them why they should believe what you know we do, them saying yes, I do believe that for myself. I think that that's important for kids. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, but what what it feels like you're saying is that the prayer book really has sort of demoted the importance of it, and yet it is the hearts and, and, and traditions of the people that have kept it elevated in a practical sense. And that's that's actually there's something to that that's really cool. And as episcopalians, we have a three-legged stool, if I can remember the three legs. Uh, one is tradition, reason, reason and scripture. scripture. So tradition's important. Um, not to undercut it, but at the same time, if if there is the impression that con- uh, confirmation got demoted a little bit, Baptism has been way elevated, moved to the front of the prayer book almost right after um, daily offices uh, as an important um, service. Now, as we get into the English church and into the English Reformation, Cramner, who was the principal author, author, I talked about him last week, the first archbishop who was the primary author of our original prayer book. He was greatly influenced by Luther and Melanchthon, and he took very much the German approach. Um, and in, our, in the baptismal service, uh, one of the things that was present there is the threefold denunciation of the devil, the world, and flesh. And there's also a threefold baptism that is affirmed in the first prayer book, which continues into ours, and that is the baptism of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Cramner was also greatly influenced, as Luther was, by a, a, a guy who was the Roman Catholic Bishop of Cologne. He was a a prince elector. He was a prince bishop. Um, An elector, what I mean is he got to vote on who would be the next Holy Roman Emperor. Emperor. It was a very tightly guarded, closed corporation. And this guy's name was Herman, was his last name. And he wrote a consultation and eventually wound up breaking with the Roman church, being excommunicated. But a lot of his writings were adopted by Luther and by Cramner, you know, in terms of the denunciation of the devil, the world, the spirit, uh, also, I mean, flesh, and the threefold baptism, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, So we're continuing to move in time, and when the 1928 prayer book, comes on the scene. That's the one immediately before the one we use. There was the sign of the cross that's made on the child's forehead or head is added back in that had been dropped previously. Um, And the the authors of, the principal authors of the new prayer book um, noted the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus in the Thanksgiving over the water, which I read to you earlier. And they specifically take note of some verses in Matthew. Matthew 28, 19 to be specific, where the charge is to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Again, not the baptism of Paul, not the baptism of just Jesus Christ, but the baptism of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I never realized what uh, how crucially important that is theologically uh, until I was uh, I was a rector at St. Luke's in Live Oak, and I got a letter from a Greek priest asking if we had baptized a particular person who wanted to join their denomination. And so I picked up the phone and I called them. And he he specifically said, was this person baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And I said, yes, that's how we do it. And he says, well, good, we'll recognize that. And then he went on to tell me that they wouldn't recognize it otherwise and he would have to go through preparation and baptism again if that had not been the case. So, um, through tradition, baptism has largely been immersion. Um, And uh, except where absolutely it couldn't be pulled off. For example, there wasn't enough water. Uh, And the church began to allow for what they call effusion, just pouring a little bit of water over the person to be baptized. And the Anglican church has largely gone that way. Um, I'm not aware of an Anglican or English church that does full immersion baptism. I'm sure there may be one somewhere. Um, But I'm reminded of a story, John Wesley, Anglican priest, comes to the colonies, uh, was rector of a big church in Savannah and gets himself in trouble immersing babies in the middle of winter. Oh. And one of them got seriously ill and basically there was uh, a lot of ill feeling and he decided he would go back to England. Uh, at least that's part of the reason I hear that Wesley went, left the colonies to go back was because of that uh, um, getting the baby wet in the winter in Savannah on a cold day. Any questions on baptism? Yes? What's the church's position or what's God's position on children whose parents decide not to have their kids baptized either through ignorance or um, lack of faith? I mean, are those children still admissible to heaven? To have. Are they admissible to heaven? I mean, what's God's position? Uh, 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 What? Okay, the way I would answer that is if we remember when Jesus was on the cross, and he had crosses both to his left and to his right, and the one at his right um, basically, you know, basically saved me, and Jesus turns to him and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Um, Jesus Christ chooses who um, is admitted to heaven. And as you'll hear in the sermon, you know, he is our judge, and he sorts out the sheep and the goats. Uh, and if somebody isn't baptized, God knows what's written on their heart. Jesus knows what's written on their heart. Um, so, does that help? Yeah. Thank you. It's an outward sign of an inward. Person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, So it's not the outward sign that matters to be any other questions before I move on to Eucharist? Which I'm going to have to get moving. The, um, the Eucharist is the other major thing that the, the writers of the uh, um, prayer book wanted to elevate. Um, when I was growing up, we had communion once a month, whether we needed it or not. Um, and we did morning prayer uh, the rest of the month. The early Eucharist evolved from the Passover meal. Jesus adds a new dimension with his body and his blood. The Last Supper, the memorial we talk about in uh, perpetuity was his command. uh, In the right one language we celebrated just a few minutes ago. Um, Historically, communion wasn't frequent. Um, And often, as the church matured, uh, communicants got just the bread. They didn't get the wine. And uh, as we get toward the Reformation, uh, both Luther and Zwingli, um, reformed churches, um, changed all that and um, elevated it to be a weekly activity. Um, Sermons and homilies were added to the Eucharist, uh, probably in the 1400s, 1500s. Uh, The Roman mass was, I'm I'm moving, gonna move some ground because I'm out of time. The Roman mass was standardized um, in the West uh, in England, there was written a, an order for communion. Um, and typically in our church, the Anglican church, morning prayer served as the pro the, the liturgy of the word that we hear today uh, through the peace. And there was no peace, but then we would, we would slip into the Eucharist, historically in the Anglican church. As Cramner wrote the first prayer book, he bought, borrowed largely from what is called the Serum Rite. And the Sarum, when we say serum, that is things associated with Salisbury Cathedral in England. Uh, and it's largely during its time as a Roman Catholic cathedral. Um, and that was part and parcel brought over and put into our Eucharistic prayer. The Sarum Rites, again, Salisbury in England, affected Christianity throughout the whole known Christian world, both East and West, largely borrowed from some of the liturgy that was developed uh, at Salisbury. What was it called again? Serum. S A R U M. Some Episcopal churches, for example, as they go into the Advent time, will use a color called serum blue uh, instead of the purple that many churches use for Advent to distinguish it from Lent. That's also a serum rite that is largely in use in, in the Anglican Communion. Uh, A lot of Anglicans still resist some of the Serum Rites um, because they they see them as being uh, Catholic. Now, the interesting thing, when you look at um, the order of the Serum Rite of Holy Communion, Eucharist, it is almost identical with what we have today in the 1979 prayer book in the order of things. There's only one or two things that are slightly out of order in the sequence of the service. Now, there were some criticisms of the 1928 prayer book that I, 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 I want to just run over real quickly. Uh, one is that it was way too rigid. Um, If you're familiar with the 1928 prayer book, um, there was a lack of opportunity for the congregation to participate in the service. Uh, The prayers for the whole state of Christ church militant or whole state of Christ church uh, were said by the priest, not by a lay reader. Um, Lay readers' predominant role were basically when the priest wasn't there, they would lead morning prayer. Um, there was also criticism that the Eucharist did not properly recognize and offer thanks to God for the creation of the world, of us, and for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That that had been missed along the way. There was also criticism that there was no epiclesis. Know what an epiclesis is? That's the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it is in all of our Eucharistic services when we invite the Holy Spirit to come and be part of us. And you'll see the priest, and some people will make the sign of the cross when that occurs during the Eucharistic prayer. Listen for it. There was no breaking of the bread or fraction, which you will see, Father Joe, or we will hold up the bread and we'll break it to make it visible. And so there was this feeling that the Eucharist needed to be, uh, have a major revision. It needed to recapture the family aspects of worship. It needed to involve the people, prayers of the people, lay reading, the whole bit. People should participate in the prayers. There were some other things that were added. Many churches uh, bring forward the bread and wine at the time of the, before the communion service. Before the ushers, when the ushers come forward to get the plates, they would bring forward the bread and the wine as an offering. Um, There needed to be a liturgy that had more than just one gospel reading for a Sunday, one Old Testament, New Testament, and Psalm. There needed to be a liturgy that had a whole bunch more. Uh, Because if people weren't going to go to morning prayer, they weren't going to hear the Bible. So the Episcopal Church in its wisdom joined what is called the Revised Common Lectionary, which is a three-year cycle. Uh, So we have, used to be that the Gospel and the Collect and the Old Testament reading were actually printed in the prayer book. And it was the same every year on a certain Sunday now you have to go three years before you repeat Um, all those priests that used their old um, homilies to preach from it just got more difficult (laughs) Uh, the uh, new prayer book added um, we we know about the Kyrie right? everybody knows what the Kyrie is? Um, It was added in Greek, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, which wasn't there before. And also added was a trisagion. And this was to take place in times that were uh, um, penitential. And it goes, Holy God, Holy and Mighty, Holy Immortal One. It was repeated three times. Instead of the Kyrie. And that would be done most often in Advent and in Lent. Uh, there was also a, a, a new opening to the Eucharist. Blessed be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit um, was all added. Um, there were new prayers for the people added. Uh, Six versions. Unfortunately, the authors of the prayer book, who I knew two of them, the two that I mentioned earlier, who were kind of the the chairs, um, the examples that are in the prayer book were never intended for us to say because their instructions on how to do the prayers of the people in the prayer book, they gave us six examples and hoped that we would be bright enough to write our own wrong <laughs> so we use we use the six in some form or other um, <clears throat> also added was the peace that's new one of the things that was argued over the most forget all the theological stuff I mean that can get hot but whether you're going to have a peace or not, whether you're going to break the service in half and give people a chance to talk to each other and greet each other and hug and come out of their pews, how unEpiscopalian is that? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Some of the most heated arguments in this prayer book happened around adding the peace into the service. Uh The bidding for confession uh, was uh, left about the same uh, for right one, um, for right two about the same, but there wasn't a right two, but it still had a bidding and the absolution is, is basically the same. Now, let's talk about the Eucharistic prayers. There are how many Eucharistic prayers in the prayer book? Four? A, B, C, and D? They're eight. Eight? They're eight. In right one, there are two prayers, one and two. In right two, there are four prayers, A, B, C, and D. And then there is the order of Eucharist, which has two. We never use the order of Eucharist. Right one, prayer one, um, which is what we celebrated this morning uh, for the Eucharist. It was largely copied from the Scottish prayer book. I mean, almost to the period and punctuation, lifted and put into our prayer book. Um, It's also lifted and part and whole, and put in the Methodist hymnal for their Eucharistic prayer. They are identical. If you go to a Methodist church when they're having a traditional Eucharist, it is the same exact wording. Rite 1, prayer 2, which we used to celebrate occasionally at St. Luke's and Live Oak. Most churches don't ever get to Rite 1, prayer 2, uh, and it, was, it has an emphasis on creation and incarnation, specifically the incarnation. Let's skip over to right two. I'm, gonna run, I'm running through this at a, at, a, at a quick pace. Prayer A is the traditional Scottish prayer in modern English. Uh, there were a couple of things added. One is the beautiful language. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and gave himself an offering and sacrifice. Um, prayer B, which we hear, which we do hear at Church of Our Savior um, in Advent and Lent, primarily, is a Gallican there's a word that just stumbles over my tongue, Gallican, was from Gaul, from France, uh, and was lifted largely from the Roman worship in France before it was suppressed by Rome. If you remember, I talked about that last week. Um, Prayer B was drafted by one of my professors at Virginia Theological Seminary when he was a lowly priest uh, in Chicago, And it was written by uh, the Right Reverend Frank Griswold. Uh, Some of you may have heard of him. Uh, He was a great teacher. I really enjoyed. Former Presiding Bishop of the Episcopal Church. Prayer C, uh, which some people call the Star Wars. Uh, it has a lot of responses uh, and it'll catch you if you're not paying attention. Um, but it is largely an Orthodox prayer. It's nothing modern about it. It is lifted largely from the Greek Orthodox Church. Episcopalians aren't proud. If they find something that's good, they'll take it. <laughs> as long as we don't have to pay for it. <laughs> uh, and it... Um, It is a recital, if you listen to Prayer C, of God's salvation story and the coming of His Holy Spirit to the people. It's different, so it's not widely used. Prayer D, uh, which is hardly ever used, um, is based on the liturgy written by St. Basil. uh, And it is taken, borrowed, if you will, from the Greek and the Slavic churches, the Greek Orthodox, the Roman Orthodox. And it is very historic. It is very ecumenical. We weren't the only ones who plagiarized it is what I'm trying to say. Added to the, um, no, uh, not added, let me strike that. We all know the, the prayer of humble access, yeah, my favorite. which we said this morning. Yeah. Um, it is um, Gallican from Gaul, from France. The post-communion prayer that we say, uh, it doesn't matter which, which rite, is from Egyptian and Syrian origin. And the blessing at the end is largely Roman and the dismissal is largely um, Greek. Let me go back and just hit a high note here, which I missed at the beginning. As we start, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and y'all say, blessed be his kingdom now and forever. Amen. That's new. I have a but, question. Yes? What happened to the sanctus spouse? Okay. Sanctus bells are still used in some churches. Um, yeah. And they, the, the tradition there is when um, the Eucharistic service was not done in English, when it was done in Latin in the Roman church, uh, the bells were used to alert people of what was going on, like the lifting of the bread or the lifting of the cup. It was to wake people up to get their attention so they would know what was going on. Because they couldn't follow along in the Latin. But I want to make a point about the opening: "Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be His kingdom now and forever." That is new in the 1979 prayer book, and also new and borrowed from the Greek Church is what do we say in in in, uh, Easter? There's a different opening. Hallelujah! Christ is risen. He has the Lord is risen indeed. That was borrowed from the Greek church, and it's Christos aneste, alithios aneste. Uh, we we're not proud. Again, we borrowed that. That's all new. Thank you very much. Yes, one question. What was the rationale for taking the prayer of Humble access out? Out? It, it's not out. It's in right one. Of not including it in right to? Um, I, 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 I don't know the answer to that. I will find out, though.